When it comes to monsters in Greek mythology, it's hard to find one more famous than Polyphemus the Cyclops. His role in Homer's Odyssey as the son of Poseidon and captor of King Odysseus has been retold and reimagined in countless forms. He's appeared in movies like Percy Jackson and Oh Brother Where Art Thou, video games like Assassin's Creed and God of War, and even TV shows like Arthur. Yeah, seriously. But the catch is that every single one of these retellings focuses on the same story, and as entertaining as they are, they've caused our boy Polyphemus to be kind of mischaracterized in the public eye. Don't get me wrong, in the Odyssey, he is just as simple-minded and sadistic as he's portrayed in pop culture, but it turns out that centuries after Homer, some new poets came along and gave the character a new life. A life where he wasn't a drunken, brutish, man-eating monster, but an intelligent, talented musician who was a bit of a hopeless romantic. He was still ugly as all hell, hence the hopeless part, but the story of his love for the sea nymph Galatea and the reason for it being written are both worth hearing. What is going on, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and today on the podcast, we're covering the complete mythology and messed up origins of Polyphemus. Chapter One, The Land of the Cyclopes. Let's start with the first story that Polyphemus appeared in, Homer's Odyssey. I know I just got done saying that we've all been a little overexposed to that story, but during my research, I found some subtle details that are never mentioned in modern retellings and fascinating analyses that I doubt your high school English teacher went over when you were forced to read it for class. So remember, Polyphemus shows up pretty early in King Odysseus's 10-year journey home from the Battle of Troy. Right after escaping the land of the Lotus Eaters, he and his crew sail to the land of the Cyclopes, where they stumble upon a massive cave full of sheep, milk, and cheese. The entire crew assumes that the Cyclopean owner will be back any minute, so they quickly grab what they need and start running towards the exit, which is also the entrance, because that's how caves work. Unfortunately though, they're held up by King Odysseus, who lingers just a little too long, and soon enough the cave's owner lumbers back in. The owner is Polyphemus, the Cyclopean son of the sea god Poseidon and the sea nymph Thusa. He's described as being an enormous, man-eating wild man who had one big eye in the center of his forehead and a bushy eyebrow that stretched across it. Initially, Polyphemus was welcoming to the intruders, but his role as a gracious host was just an act. As soon as he sealed the only exit out of his cave with a big old boulder, he picked up two of Odysseus's 12 crewmen and devoured them. The savory taste of blood and guts tempted Polyphemus to have even more, but he knew that this kind of snackage was a rare find, so much to the remaining men's relief, he decided to save them for later, feeling pretty confident that they wouldn't be able to escape in the meantime. And to Polyphemus's credit, he was right. Even the clever Odysseus knew that he had no hope of escaping as long as that boulder was in front of the entrance but it was in situations like this, where Odysseus's options were limited, that he had his most brilliant ideas. The next night, Odysseus offers Polyphemus some wine that he had brought to the cave from his ship, and the Cyclops skeptically accepts the offer. But after a few swigs, he starts to let loose a little bit and begins prodding Odysseus with questions like, What's your name? Odysseus politely lies that his name is nobody or no man, depending on the translation, and Polyphemus says, 
Well, nobody, you're actually pretty cool. So as a sign of our friendship, I promise to eat you last. Not long after this, Polyphemus passes out from intoxication, which was the signal for Odysseus and his men to start the next phase of their plan. Together, they lift up the wooden stake they had sharpened and heated over the fire earlier that day and drive it straight through the unconscious Cyclops' eye, blinding him and sending him into a fit of rage. I want to take a moment here to give props to the animators and writers of Arthur who found a way to include this scene in their Odyssey episode. Instead of Polyphemus being stabbed through the eye, he was portrayed by Buster, a rabbit, and they tied his one ear around his head like a blindfold. What a creative way of making this moment child-friendly. On the opposite end of that child-friendly spectrum is the game God of War Ascension, which features a multiplayer level where the sole focus is ripping out the Cyclops' eye in the most gruesome way possible. Ah, the power of teamwork. So after Polyphemus is blinded, he cries out to the other Cyclopes for help, saying that nobody is killing him. But the Cyclopes were naturally a little confused by this and decided it'd be best if they just didn't get involved. Odysseus and his crew have to hide in the cave's nooks and crannies to avoid the giant's wrath until the next morning, when it's time for him to let out his sheep again. After waking up from his slumber, Polyphemus unseals the entrance by rolling the boulder out of the way and holds his hand out to feel the tops of his sheep, counting them as they pass and making sure none of his prisoners are trying to sneak out with the flock. But what he doesn't realize is that the crew are under the sheep, hanging on to their bellies. Soon enough, not only had Odysseus and his men escaped the cave, they made it all the way back to their ship, and they took the sheep with them for good measure. It was at this moment when Odysseus was feeling just a little too proud of himself that he chose to reveal his true identity to Polyphemus. He said, Yo, dumbass, my real name is Odysseus, not nobody. You just got got. But as you all know, it would be Odysseus who would get got in the end for he did not realize he had just angered the son of Poseidon. And I mean really angered, because Polyphemus had actually been told by an oracle that he would be blinded by a man named Odysseus. So you can imagine his rage when he realizes this horrible injury could have been avoided. The wounded Cyclops threw boulder after boulder at the boat and nearly capsized them a few times, even with his aiming impaired. But as he heard their cries of victory fade into the distance, he prayed to his father to punish Odysseus for his crimes, and Poseidon obliged him, cursing the king to have a miserable commute home. So that's the last we hear of Polyphemus and Homer's Odyssey. And up until researching for this episode, that was all I knew about him. But it turns out that a few centuries later, the Roman poet Ovid added a kind of epilogue to this encounter. It's a little sad, but one of Odysseus's men, Achaemenides, was left behind on the Cyclops Island while everyone else made their escape. He wasn't able to yell for help either because he didn't want Polyphemus to know he was stranded there. A few days later, Achaemenides is rescued by Aeneas, another guy who was in Odysseus's crew. And he tells his savior that after the king made his escape, Polyphemus continued to stomp around and curse the entire race of Greeks. And he goes into explicit detail about the giant's face being covered in blood, not just from his eye injury, but also from the guts of his previous victims. Achaemenides' friends. Achaemenides survived his abandonment by hiding in the shadows of the island, tiny spaces where Polyphemus couldn't reach. And for several days, he went vegan, eating only acorns, leaves, and grass. That's what you people eat, right? And thanks to his testimony, we can safely assume that after Odysseus left, Polyphemus went back to his usual business of lumbering around his island, herding sheep, 
and eating any other travelers who were unlucky enough to wander into his cave. Maybe socializing with the other Cyclopes too, if he was ever able to get over them not answering his cries for help. Now that I think about it though, that conclusion is actually pretty similar to his story in Percy Jackson. Granted, the book and movie are extremely different, but in both versions, the Cyclops is just stuck living his half-blind life in his lair after Odysseus escapes. Though somehow he managed to get his hands on the Golden Fleece, which in this universe is bait for satyrs, half men, half goats. Of course, he ends up losing that fleece to our heroes who go on to use it to heal the source of the Camp Half-Blood's protective barrier, but we'll be talking about that story soon enough. Right now, I've got to tell you all about Polyphemus's unrequited love for Galatea, or to put it in modern terms, the time Polyphemus was a big fat simp. Chapter 2. The Simp. Just like how Ovid added a mini epilogue to Polyphemus's encounter with Odysseus several centuries after Homer's Odyssey was transcribed, he and a few other poets expanded on Polyphemus's character with another myth where he falls in love with a sea nymph named Galatea. Depending on which poet you're reading, the myth might take place before Odysseus met Polyphemus, after Odysseus met Polyphemus, or it overlaps. The timeline really isn't important though, so I'm not gonna talk about it much. Though I should mention that this version of Polyphemus is much smarter than Homer's. He's actually an artist and a poet, not just a drunken brute who eats people. He is still ugly as fuck though, which is the primary source of his woes. Let me explain. One day, Polyphemus catches a glimpse of the beautiful Nereid, Galatea, emerging out of the ocean surrounding his island, and for him, it's love at first sight. When he approaches her on the shore, though, she screams at the sight of his monstrous face and leaps back into the ocean, leaving Polyphemus staring at his own hideous reflection. At least, you and I would find it hideous. Funnily enough, Polyphemus is reassured by his reflection. He thinks he looks handsome. Sure, he's covered in hair, but trees without leaves are ugly. And yeah, he might only have one eye, but it's a huge, glorious orb, like the sun. I think that's a lesson we can all take from Polyphemus. It's all about perspective. As Mama Solo likes to say, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Anyway, the Cyclops soon discovers that the cure for his heartache is music, and depending on the version, he either plays a stringed instrument called a kithar or the panpipes to distract him from his hopeless love. According to the poet Philoxenus, Odysseus and Polyphemus briefly talked about Galatea that night they shared the bottle of wine. Odysseus, claiming to be a sorcerer, said that he knew Polyphemus was in love with her and that he could easily cast a spell to make her love him back if he were given his freedom. Polyphemus is a little smarter in this version though and actually laughs at the offer knowing that's an impossibility. But later Later on in the story, Polyphemus, who has apparently not been blinded yet, witnesses something that makes him lose his shit. Galatea, the woman he loves, cuddling with a shepherd named Asus. Right then and there, the giant decided that if Galatea wouldn't love him, she wouldn't love anyone. Using his bare hands, he tore a slab of stone from the side of the mountain and threw it as hard as he could at the couple. Galatea, who had seen this happen out of the corner of her eye, screamed for her life and jumped into the water for safety. But Asus, who wasn't as quick to react, was crushed under the boulder. Not exactly a happily ever after for the couple, but you'll be happy to hear the relationship was not over. No, Galatea wasn't a necrophile. She actually used some nymph magic to turn Asus into a low-level river god, meaning that he would be safe from Polyphemus's jealousy, and Polyphemus would never see Galatea again. 
Get it? Because he's blinded? At least that's one version of how their story goes. In another, Polyphemus' persistence pays off and Galatea ends up falling for him. The two exchange love letters and even have a son together. Galatus. I'm assuming that in this version, Polyphemus never smashed her previous lover into a puddle of goo, because that's a red flag I don't think anyone could ignore. Maybe he did though. That still wouldn't be the most toxic relationship in mythology. Chapter three, the point of Polyphemus. So now that we've gone over Polyphemus' most prominent role in the mythos and his lesser known love story, it's safe to say you could all answer the question, who is Polyphemus? But could you tell me why is Polyphemus? As in, why was he included in the Odyssey and why was his role so important? To answer that question, I have to tell you about a Greek social custom called Xenia or Xenia. Xenia is the proper way, but Xenia is so much easier. Xenia was basically a sacred rule of hospitality. Whenever a guest humbly presented themselves to a host, that host was obligated to fulfill all of the guest's needs that they could. Polyphemus choosing to ignore the Xenia custom and eat his vulnerable visitors instead of acting as a gracious host was a total disrespect to the gods, so he was punished for his short-sightedness. And the lesson is that a similar fate could befall anyone who follows in his footsteps. There's another myth in Ovid's Metamorphoses that illustrates this same lesson a little more obviously. A disguised Hermes and Zeus are denied shelter by all of the wealthy residents in this village, but then taken in by an elderly couple named Baucus and Philemon who had lived in poverty their entire lives. Despite having almost nothing to offer, the couple was as generous as they could afford to be and went so far as to slaughter their only goose so their visitors could have something to eat. The gods were extremely grateful for this hospitality, so to punish the neighborhood's selfish residents for their wickedness, Zeus summoned a flood that washed them all away. The only structure left standing was Baucus and Philemon's house, which had now transformed into a glorious temple to the gods. The couple was also blessed so that neither one had to live without the other. After a few years residing in and watching over the temple that used to be their humble home, they passed away at the same time and their bodies were transformed into a pair of intertwining trees. And to think that Polyphemus could have been similarly blessed if he had just respected the sacred law and offered hospitality to Odysseus and his men. Maybe he would have gotten with Galatea a little bit sooner. Speaking of, I don't think there's any lesson we're supposed to take away from their little love story, but scholars living in ancient Greece gave two pretty funny origins for it. One claimed the myth was written as satire to dunk on the tyrant Dionysius I, whose favorite concubine was named Galatea. And another scholar said the poet Philoxenus saw a shrine to Galatea near Mount Etna, and he didn't know how it got there. So he just made up the Polyphemus built it for the sea nymph when he was in love with her. Personally, I like option number two. Now, Polyphemus may be the most well-known monster in all of Greco-Roman mythology, but he's not exactly unique in the larger world of mythology and folklore. You might be surprised to hear this because I know I was, Experts have identified over 200 variants in the Polyphemus story found in countries all around Europe and Asia. But for those asking what exactly is a Polyphemus story, the structure is pretty simple, but very specific. In one version found in the Caucasus region, the group of men are brothers and they have to watch each other get cooked alive on a spit roast, then eaten. A similar event also happens in the original Sinbad the Sailor story, which we've talked about before. Homer actually combined this didn't work. 
Homer actually combined this story structure with another surprisingly common folklore motif where the protagonist claims his name is nobody in order to hide his true identity. That's some pretty heavy shit, right? That even a story as old as the Odyssey is just an amalgam of stories that came before it. So if you're one of those people who claims that all the movies, shows, and video games coming out nowadays are never original, it turns out the stories we've been telling each other haven't been original for a long time. But that's kind of the point of Messed Up Origins, so you might have known that already. Anyway, all this talk about humans being eaten alive is giving me the munchies, so I'm gonna go get a snack. But hey, thanks for checking out this episode of the Messed Up Origins podcast. I hope you found it entertaining, enlightening, and a little bit horrifying. Personally, I had a lot of fun with this one, but I wanna know your thoughts. Do you think that you would survive on Polyphemus' island like Odysseus did? Or would you be one of the first crewmen eaten, like me? Let me know in a comment down below. Then be sure to sacrifice those like and subscribe buttons to the algorithm gods because that goes a long way in supporting the channel and helps my content reach new eyes and ears. Oh, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet. I post remastered classic episodes of the show on Mondays and Wednesdays. That's with all new sound effects and music and fresh episodes like this on Fridays. I'll speak with you again next week when we dive into the world of J.R.R. Tolkien and analyze the folklore of magic rings. My name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first. 